0: You zombies, welcome to uh, another uh, broadcast of uh, Hey All You Zombies. I'm Richard Krause, sitting over here in the zombie lair. It's not really a zombie lair, there's a zombie with a pen through his chest, and that's about as zombie ish as it gets here. Uh, on the other end of the line is Chris Abel, uh, tech slinger, and, Hello. and a little bit more knowledgeable about all things than I am. And uh, um, today, we I want to start uh, with a kind of very special thing that happened. Ravine, uh, the people Jonathan Winters, uh, you know Margaret Thatcher. There's so many people have passed away in the last couple of weeks. It's hard to keep track of them all. One of them was Ravine, the Impossibilist. And last time that we did the podcast last week, we talked a great deal about Ravine. I grew up going to see him. You do a terrific Ravine impression, <laughs> and uh, you know, for me, uh, the Ravine thing was uh, such a, a part of my childhood. I was just a delighted. Uh, to be reminded of them, although in sad circumstances. But I was delighted to sort of uh, think of them, Well, someone very special got in touch with us uh, because of that broadcast.
1: Yes, I was really pleased just the other day that uh, we had a comment pop up on that episode uh, from Cody Ravine, who is uh, his grandfather, uh, grandson. That's the coolest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, He he wrote and said, hey, Ravine's my grandpa. Uh, So I wrote back to him, and uh, this is what he he sent to me, very nice of him. Uh, Found the part about Ravine quite interesting. Heard much from my parents, but to hear from others is amazing, really. Uh, Got to visit him during my spring break and and had a fantastic visit. The website, ravine.com, is run mostly by my uncle, Ty Ravine, who is continuing the legacy. With Ravine, the next generation, awesome, really interesting to watch. He says, "Oh, that's
0: fun! I'm um, I'm really happy to hear that. I, that's cool." And and do you know where he's from?
1: I uh, no, he didn't. He didn't share me. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing he's probably in the United States, right? That's where Ravine himself would have lived. But no, I don't. I don't know uh, what location he's from. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that makes me very happy. Uh, because uh, it was it was uh, again a big part of my uh, of my childhood was uh, spent looking at those posters because you seem to play down there a lot you know and it was a time in Canadian show business for a lot of people that were working uh, like Ravine where you made your money on the road you were just out all the time you worked a lot at the time and sometimes you know you performed in. Uh, uh, high school, uh, uh, you know, high school uh, auditoriums. Sometimes you performed in uh, uh, hockey arenas. You did the odd television gig. You know, Ravine, I'm sure, probably ended up on the Dini Petty show and, you know, things like that uh, every now and again. But uh, for me, it was my memories of seeing him playing in uh, high school auditoriums and things that really meant so much to me because, as I said uh, last week, we didn't get – uh, a huge amount of entertainment down there, uh, people on tour. And so when any, ever anybody came down of any kind, uh, I would go see him, and Ravine uh, was there a lot, and it was really thrilling to see him then, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, have him remembered on our show uh, uh, now.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it speaks a lot to his, you know, generosity, when you have an entertainer that's willing to go where the other bands, the other acts are not willing to go, it says a lot about, you know, he may not have been making a lot of money during those gigs. It may have been more about the reward of connecting with those people. Yeah. But I, I love the idea that Ravine, uh, this this mystical name, That there's actually a Ravine family. You know, it's like finding Uh, out there's a a Mrs. Merlin and little Merlin (laughs) running around. So it's it's fantastic that there's a Peter Ravine and then Ty Ravine, Uncle Ty Ravine, and now uh, Cody Ravine. So really exciting. And and the the promise of Ravine the next generation is wonderful.
0: Yeah. Well, I will keep my eye open for Ravine the next generation because I enjoyed the last generation very much. Um, Well, there's, you know, it's been an interesting week uh, since we we spoke last. Again, lots of things have happened. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, uh, the reporting on the Boston Marathon. And I'm not going to, we all know what happened, awful, tragic events that happened in Boston. But I was really kind of horrified yesterday by, well, by two things, by CNN announcing very early on that someone had been arrested, Uh, and there was actually even a description, John King gave a description of this person on the air. And uh, there's going to be press conferences, it was announced, and you know, this thing has been, uh, we've confirmed it with two sources. Now the the two things that shocked me about it, for one thing, that it made it to air at all. Now apparently they did confirm it with two sources, which is what you're supposed to do, but in a situation like this, you really want to be right. You really want to be right. So go the the extra way. Talk to the police. Talk to someone who actually might have put the handcuffs on somebody, you know, rather than, than hearing from someone who heard that maybe possibly this is, this has happened. Because what it did is it led to this sort of frenzy of news coverage that all turned out to be wrong. And uh, the second thing that I was not happy about was how I fell for it. And I sat here for a good chunk of the afternoon waiting to hear more c n n on the television over there, uh, talk radio on the on the uh, you know stereo here while I was trying to work um, because I wanted to see if something happened and you know there is such a frenzy around this, and there is such a a feeling that you know we want someone to be responsible that uh, that I just felt that we all myself then included kind of jumped at this uh completely unsubstantiated story. And uh, I, I think that we all sort of did ourselves a disservice in the process.
1: Yeah, there was a bit of a, um, a witch hunt feel to it, wasn't yeah. there? You know, like, yeah, burn definitely. him, burn him, burn him. You know, everybody's so quick to kind of jump on top and, and, and seize the idea that they found the person. Uh, and that was, you're right, very, it was sickening.
0: Yeah, I mean, John Stewart uh, had a go at John King uh, on The Daily Show last night. And it was pretty funny. I mean, you know, he, uh, he said that maybe John King, the next time uh, he, he decides he's going to break a story like this, uh, should sit back and drink a long, hot cup of shut the beep up.
1: <laughs> well, and, and let's be clear what happened here, because uh, if you're a reporter working on that scenario, you know that the FBI, the authorities, they're going to hold a press conference soon. that it was going to be something that in a matter of a couple of hours. So this wasn't about just getting the the information out to people. It was trying to be first. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. That annoying troll-like behavior that you often see on websites, not so much now, but it used to be, where people wanted to be the first person to comment. They would write first. That's what John King was trying to do on CNN, for crying out loud.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, it happens. So, So I get that. Uh, you know, news business is very competitive. But, you know, there are ethics involved here. And and he really, I I felt, went over a line with them. But, you know, it's not unlike. I remember when um, uh, Nicole, and Nicole Smith died. And I was on an airplane with with a plane full. I was on my way to Los Angeles. I was on an airplane with a plane full of entertainment journalists. I can't remember what we were all going down there to cover, but we were all doing the same thing down there. And uh, we – phones are ringing everywhere. And uh, when we got off the plane, we all picked up our phones, and everyone's phones were like, bing, 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 and they were all ringing and emails were coming in because the news had broken while we were all in the air. And so we we got off the plane, and and everyone had an email that said, find someone to talk to about Anna Nicole Smith. Find someone connected to the story. Just get something and, uh, you know, deal with it. And so I went back to my hotel, or went to the hotel, turned on the, the television, and CNN was on the, the, uh, the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, and I watched for a, you know a little stretch of time while I sat and made some calls and got ready to, to do whatever else it was I had to do that day. And it was just all conjecture. We don't know anything, but we've talked to a doctor who said that she may have died as a, of a heart attack. We've talked to another doctor who suggested that maybe she had been ill for a long time and this is what, and it could be, and it was just, the, the, the most important thing was that they were able to flash pictures of man and Nicole Smith on the screen, you know, every, different ones, every couple of minutes to keep people interested and to keep the, the dog and pony show going. Other than that, there was no reason for the kind of coverage they had because they had not one bit of evidence or facts. They weren't uncovering any news. They were just simply rehashing stuff that, uh, you know, I would say that we already knew, except that we didn't know anything. And that's what I kind of found about this this Boston uh, coverage, uh, was that there was just so much speculation. And I think it's, you know, in a case like this, pardon me, it's really dangerous to simply speculate on uh, on this because we don't know who it was. We don't know whether it was uh, Al-Qaeda. We don't know whether it was, um, you know, a, a, a patriot. You know, someone uh, you know from uh, with with a misguided sense of of sending a you know an American uh, domestic terrorist. We don't know. We don't know anything about it yet. And maybe you know someone at the very highest levels of the FBI do, but they're not talking. And until that happens, uh, we don't need to see this splashed across the, the screens twenty four hours a day. I no, think- I agree. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 one thing when you're just trying to. Uh, refresh the story constantly because you know the theory always is uh, in news is that there's somebody who's tuning in now who hasn't heard it yet. Yeah. So I understand that part, but in the zeal of wanting to keep the story going, there is this moment in which stuff is starting to become made up.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And that's you know you could argue well the first part isn't really you know a harmful. Yes, they have to keep talking about it all throughout the day. But the second part is is incredibly helpful, uh, harmful. You're you're doing great damage when you send out misinformation because it inevitably affects the way that we handle this crisis moving forward. And you know we want it to be handled as best as we can.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just I, I really do feel like we've we've um, um, we we you know our, our thirst for uh, instantaneous information. Um, has led to uh, just a lot of mistakes being made, and now there's just so much information. I think, like, you know, it, it, go on any website, go like just even something really mainstream, like uh, the Huffington Post, and read all the comments on any news story, <clears throat> and you start seeing a lot of, you know, well, I don't read the mainstream press anymore. Mainstream press is, a, you know, and everyone seems to have this idea that, you know, the mainstream press is uh, is doing them wrong somehow. They're not telling the whole story. They're biased. They're left. They're on the right. They're whatever they are. But um, which is a new thing. I mean, you know, we have never been more connected than we are right now in terms of, of being able to do stuff like this, the internet, know but we've never been more uh, divided as well. we have never had this much information coming at us constantly. And old media, like television, is trying to compete with all that, and as a result, huge mistakes are being made, and I think what it's doing, in fact, is the, the, uh, a great disservice to old uh, uh, media in the sense that it's turning people away from it, because mistakes like John King made yesterday Uh, erode confidence in it.
1: Right, and I think um, from my perspective what I often see is that we invariably create the scenario for people who are going to game the situation. That There is unfortunately a lot of people in the world who just suffer a bit of an emotional disconnect. When a big story like this happens for them it's not about a tragedy, it's an opportunity to sort of play with the situation. And So you have people who then start to introduce conspiracy theories for them, you know, um, there were all sorts of people scattering in the comment sections about how the, the, the killings, the marathon uh, bombing didn't actually happen. That It's been faked, just like the moon landings were faked. You get that kind of thing. You have people who are very quick to suddenly polarize and play a, almost like a Las Vegas guessing game as to whether this was a, an al-Qaeda attack or there was a local attack and it's just... Why are people doing that? That that seems to be such a disconnect to the emotion, the, the the weight of what this whole tragedy is. That you can remove yourself and go, "Hey, let's have fun with all these sort of guessing games." I think that's that's horrible to me.
0: And, and it is. I mean, it's 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 worse. It, it gets worse every every uh, day that goes on. I mean, there was more uh, what I would consider irresponsible coverage of the Waco fire, you know, and and uh, it just it it, it it you know and, and again, you know, it's, it's been a weird week because there has been, you know, the, the Waco fire that happened in the, the anniversary of the same week that the shootings, you know, that the, the the shootings, the compound in Waco happened, David Koresh and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, you know, you can't help, but think, Oh, but then you start thinking like, you know, a, a, a conspiracy theorist. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start uh, acting like John King and, you know, making wild, outlandish, uh, uh, um, you know, comments. So I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, all I want are the facts, and I want them. I would like them presented to me uh, when they are actual facts and not conjecture.
1: Yeah, right. and it's, it's hard because this has been a growing trend uh, just in news regularly. Uh, the, the tech scene for me, has transformed remarkably from when I first started uh, right. in 2000, in which it was more of a wow, how is technology and computers going to change the world? And then it became where people were playing this very same game, even though it's not about a tragedy, about what the next iPhone is going to look like, and people right. claiming to already have it, to have seen it, and the, the, the willingness to kind of just go to the, the airwaves with really bad information. Just because yeah. the feeling that you know that this is an activity we can all jump in and it's going to get good ratings was just horrifying to me because it's, that's not what we're, we're here for. It's not what we should be, and it's not what I want to see. It, it sort of is a big, major distraction.
0: Yeah, no, it is. And uh, hopefully, you know, we we this. I mean, I don't see, I don't see it changing. Frankly, I don't see it going the other way. But there will be uh, something will have to happen eventually. You know, someone will make. Such a giant miscalculation, uh, such a giant mistake that, uh, um, you know, people will have to sit back and go, you know what, we don't have to be first, we have to be best.
1: Correct, yeah. And that may be happening with John King over at CNN. I will say that... um, I wouldn't
0: want to be him today. (laughs) (laughs)
1: This particular uh, story I found on my Twitter feed as it was breaking, that there were people... Now, I mean, that's my Twitter feed. That's not representative of of what's out there. But there were people immediately talking about the fog of news, how there was uh, a large amount of confusion. There were people saying, please don't retweet any old piece of information you hear on, on Twitter, you know, I, there was at least a voice of reason out there saying, try to be, you know, ask questions about what you're hearing. Be careful what sources that you're getting information before you just pass it along to anybody. I thought that was pretty good. And I do like the fact that at least some reporters are starting to try to, to book guests specifically to debunk or to, to try to, to get rid of some of this conspiracy stuff.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think... You'll, uh, you'll find that they say on Twitter, uh, the first hour is actually, once something happens, the first hour is actually pretty good. You're getting, you know, often, uh, you know, uh, uh, in-the-moment reportage. You're getting stuff that is, that is useful, and then, you know, the next 24 to 48 hours is just, you know, turn off your Twitter account because you're not getting anything new, interesting, or factual from it, probably, that you yeah. can't get anywhere else.
1: There's so much pressure, people are so panicked that you get people who, in the absence of having information, yeah. will, you know, supply information that's bad, and, and it's not always somebody being mean, it's just a case that you have people who are trying to come up with an answer. Yeah. And The one that I was involved with, that I, I was interviewed about, was the cell phones going down in the area. Right, that, um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Rather than think that it was just merely the case that you had hundreds of thousands of people all trying to call each other in a panic, right. people wanted to believe that some men in black from, with you know, FBI helicopters had ride-wing <coughs> shut down all the cell phones in the right. area because. You know, they believed that somebody was going to use a cell phone to detonate maybe another bomb that was out there. And it's just, you've seen too many movies. And and, and this is fine when you see it on a comment section on an article, but when a reporter is passing along, when people are writing it into articles. Like, wow. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's quite, it's it's quite something, isn't it? Uh, What else did you bring along today? Uh, well, um, non formed rant uh, is all right. I just felt it was something I, I, I sat here and was just angered with myself by the end of the day.
1: Well, and it's good. I think that uh, people aren't calling out that kind of behavior often enough. And if we do, then you will see um, people sort of starting to participate. It becomes the new reaction. The next time there's a big tragedy, you're going to see more people on Twitter and Facebook going, don't just repeat everything you hear. You right. know, or Everybody kind of calm down and, and take everything with a grain of salt. To understand the importance of why we have to be calm and wait for the right information, not just any information.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. I wanted to talk today, um, this was something I thought of at the last minute, so it's not anything I've written to you about, but I, I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation about cheating. Right, And uh, what brought this upon is that, um, I mean, partly I, I think it's interesting because I'm a gamer, and, and you're someone who is not a gamer. That's right. So th- what I thought was interesting about that is that my generation growing up with video games, cheating is a very different relationship. We have a very different relationship with cheating than I think previous generations. Maybe. Right. We'll find out. You know, I'll, I'll get your take on this. But for me, what brought this upon was that um, today now, if you were a gamer, especially because everything's connected and everything's online. there it's, it's relatively easy to connect with people who are um, semi-famous, notable people you may have a great amount of respect for. Right. So there's a good chance now if you're playing your favorite game, you might be able to have uh, your favorite comic book artist be on your list or maybe a musician that you like or that kind of thing and so someone that I, I don't know personally but I, I do know their work I'm, I'm kind of you know respectful of them I logged in onto a, one of the countless games I played this week and I noticed they were cheating a blue streak like you wouldn't believe
0: really
1: um, just like unabashed just you know give me everything that the game can have I want all the goodies now I don't even want to work for it or, or do anything like that wow. and yeah and it, it, it was tough because I felt like Number one, this person should know that they're they're publicly being followed by lots of fans. But also, I, I kind of lost a little bit of not respect, but I was disappointed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like
1: this was somebody who's very creative. I think the creative people sort of understand the value of working really hard to to get sort of rewards. So I was, they just were like, ah, oh, oh man, that kind of that kind of So, um, but to to sort of explore that idea, I, I kind of wanted to know. What is it that you think of with cheating? What does cheating mean to you? What was your experiences with cheating growing up? Well,
0: I mean, you know, I grew up in a in sort of an era before, well, obviously before uh, video games. Um, cheating, I don't know that I that that I have experiences so much with cheating. Uh, you know, in terms of games playing games with my friends and that sort of thing. But certainly, you know, in school, man, I'll tell you, there were there were very elaborate. Uh, in, in some classes that I took, the people were would go through very elaborate uh, ways to try and, and cheat on tests and, and, you know, smuggle in information in, in kind of outlandish ways. And I could never really understand that I thought, you know, if you're spending this much time trying to figure out how to get something to sneak something in, learn it. It's probably faster to sneak it in in your brain than it is to, you know, write it on your cups or do whatever the hell it is that you think you're going to be able to do and not get caught and then kicked out or whatever else might happen, you know. So um, cheating for me has always been uh, something that, uh, that, that, you know, in, in terms of gaming I don't really do it, so I, I, I don't have experience there.
1: Well, or, but, or even anything in life. So, you know, uh, cheating on taxes, uh, cheating in sports, cheating in casino games.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I, – I, I think, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm kind of a workhorse. And uh, I think that, you know, anything that doesn't feel earned to me uh, feels false in a lot of ways and so uh i'm not i'm not a cheater I, i'll sit here and, and do the work you know and and like um i don't know you know there there's been so much talk about plagiarism and journalism uh recently and you know i i am writing a new book right now uh, i'm i'm approaching the end of it and you know uh, uh, so much of this book uh is research. This has just been, a, there's a stack of research materials just out of camera range here that I've been using, and um, I've, I've been extraordinarily careful uh, with it to make sure that I don't even unintentionally uh, use anyone else's work in anything that I do, and, uh, or to try and have any of their ideas in my head, because for me, that feels like cheating. For me, that feels like not doing the work. If you're going to do this, if you if you decide to get into this line of work that that we're both in, uh, which is you know uh, for me you know on the, the the art side of things for you on the tech side of things, you have to be prepared to do the work and to to have your own opinions. Otherwise, really, what fun is it just to sit and be a disseminator of somebody else's information? Doesn't really appeal to me all that much.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I think. The way that it has developed with video games has been kind of interesting because people now cheat for a variety of different reasons. I think right. in the world over, when somebody cheats, it's generally to try to get the rewards without doing all the work. Right. Right. It's it's a it's a form of, of laziness.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and and clearly, I think in new- Initially, with video games, that was the, the case. I mean, people don't cheat in other formats. People don't cheat to listen to music. Video games demands work. You have to work to get yeah. to the next, uh, to continue to, to the next chapter of the story. And I think initially that was the case that people were, but now it's become such a such a, a matter of fact occurrence that I think for the the generation that now is younger than I am, who have grown up where video games is now part of their, their childhood permanently. For them, it's almost that's part of the kit. You get the game, you get the the cheat codes or the hacks that go with it, and that's part of the experience together, that one is not separated from the other. I disagree with that because I would say if that's the case, then the guys who design the game would include those things with it.
0: Well, as part of the game, yeah.
1: Right. But they don't. Usually it's somebody having to go off and do research to try to figure these things out. But uh, it's interesting because I always look at it with confusion. Uh, myself and, and my friends, we're kind of fuddy-duddies when it comes to games, right? Like, we don't see the end um, status that you get at the game, that you are the god or you saved the world as being the real reason that you play. It's the, the journey itself, the game itself. Often I find people who cheat are just trying to to skip over that journey. They're not interested. And so I often wonder, like, why are you playing the game? Yeah. There's so many other things that you could be doing. Why would you sit down and, and subject yourself to this just so you could skip ahead and get the little badge?
0: Yeah.
1: It surprises me. I'm not sure how to to, to feel about it. But I mean it's something that it's now this major relationship because it's something everyone has encountered by the time you're six years old.
0: It, it, to- it's not unlike in some ways, I, I guess what we were just talking about, you know, in terms of, you know, wanting uh you want to be first, you want to be acknowledged, you want to be, you know, you, you want to have the, you want to get through to the end of the game, but you don't really want to put the effort into doing it.
1: Yeah, it's it's a case, um, I think the the other comparison, because I've, I've experienced it in school, though usually when I experience it in school, it's somebody coming up to me and asking me to cheat with them, right. or to help them cheat, and it's like there's somebody that has to go to the bathroom, oh come on, you're making a big deal of it, why not just make this easy for me, that kind of stuff. Right. But I I find with video games, because it's not work you have to do, Uh, you know, a school test is something you're, it's an obstacle you have to face to get around to be able to continue on in life, in real life. But a video game is a pastime you've chosen. You went to a store and paid $70. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's a yeah. And, and then, then you want to get I,
0: through it as quickly as possible, yeah.
1: Right, yeah, and I, I just, uh, that that sort of surprises me. I don't understand the attitude, but it, it's something that is very pervasive now, and that increasingly the people, most people that I've encountered who play video games, uh, especially people who are younger that come up and very enthusiastic and want to have a conversation about it, very quickly I find out that they are cheating, that they are uh, have already unlocked everything without having to do all the work. But to me, I like the work. To me, that's the whole journey in the first place.
0: Well, that's the game. That's the game part of the game.
1: Right. <laughs> I think for, for some people, um, the, they see the task as just as a way to get something. I want something that makes me feel important. I want a little status icon that I can show all my friends online. And then there's people uh, like myself. that I, I sort of throw myself in that camp. It's about trying to learn something. You're, you're going through. – you're taking the test at school because you actually want to learn something. You want to pick up knowledge. It's not about just getting the gold star.
0: Right, right. Well, it, it's interesting. Right. I, I, You know, people uh... – I do find it funny. I find it funny that people have, you know, this isn't cheating, but have walls of books that they've never read, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. There is a certain amount of um, – I heard a term the other day that was interesting, and it's applied to social media, uh, and specifically people who, they say, are above the age of 30, is that you enter a point in your life where you're, you're doing impression management. It becomes really important for you to kind of manage the impression that you give to other people. So that may be part of it. Yeah. Uh, but th- there's another approach that I find in gaming, which is that people cheat to be rebellious. Right. People cheat to almost as a way of sort of saying, um, you know. F- Get rid of the rules. Forget uh, the the, the parents. Forget the people in charge. Screw you, authority, that kind of thing. There is that kind of a sense that people feel it's okay to to cheat just for that reason. I don't agree with that. I don't quite understand it. I don't know who you're rebelling against. Again, you went to a store and paid $70 for the game, so in a way you're almost rebelling against yourself. But you do get to a point where if people find out you don't cheat – then it's you know they become suspicious of you. You're you're a goody two shoe at that point. You know maybe there's something kind of creepy about you. Right? You've, <laughs> you've never decided to just punch in. You know turn on God mode. I mean really are you that much of a loser? You're going to sit there for twelve hours and grind away through battles to get this kind of stuff. But right. you know I think part of it is just that there is a, a an experience. Sometimes pain does lead to euphoria when you are sitting down trying to get through this next level and it takes you four hours. When you finally do it, you walk away going, oh, you know, and you get a real sense of achievement from it rather than just a little cartoon character going, da, 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 you're, yep. the Win. you're a winner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the lotto company machines. That's right. Yeah. Get on. Winner. Winner.
0: Yeah. That's another thing. Don't even get me started trying to buy, you know, vitamin water at the convenience store and getting stuck behind people that have to check 75 tickets don't even get me started about that
1: well that's, that's just addiction yeah. <laughs> that's something very different but yeah it's it's um, I don't know if, if enough people have a, a talk about it but it's one of those things that if you're sitting around with a bunch of people they play games you ask about cheating you're gonna get about five different really polarized uh, opinions and I and I'm just is it something that you find comes up? Do you find that people have conversations about cheating? It doesn 't have to be about gaming, but just but in any capacity
0: no I, I i don't I have to say i, I I'm, I'm trying to to think of the last time that it may have come up and i, I can't I, i'm i 'm drawing a blank i mean. I I think that it's something I, I can't imagine that people are are I mean people will say oh I cheated on my diet I you know I you know I ate a chocolate bar but I shouldn't have that kind of thing but that I think is really you know the extent to which people might uh, want to acknowledge their cheating you know. Right. I don't think, well, a lot of people walk around and go, I'm a cheater, everybody, so don't, uh, you know, unless it's like playing with, you know, grandpa, playing whisk with grandpa, you know, and he cheats a little bit, and everyone knows it, and you think it's funny. But beyond that, I don't think people uh, openly acknowledge it that often.
1: No? Okay. It's very, very interesting. One day I'll get you to try a video game. I know there's a bunch of your fans that want you to. They're not
0: interested at all. Uh-huh. I, I just don't have time right now because I'm a. i have a slightly uh, compulsive, uh, 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 you know, com, uh, uh, personality that I'm just sure that I would end up like. Yes. You
1: know, thousands I,
0: of hours that I don't have right now.
1: And that's something that I, I have heard a lot. Like it's one thing. I think sometimes people feel like there's a, a generational judgment. Right. Oh, those those fuddly deadly video game things, and especially because you're a film critic. Right. I know that my conversations with people who are your fans, um, it's a sore point. Not of you personally, but because of Roger Ebert, because of a couple of other film critics. Right. right. To that be, like, yeah. yeah, and it's something that's it's true of other film critics that I've met that uh, as um occupation, you guys tend not to be gamers, you tend not to be people who, who are heavily into technology, and there's almost sort of this sense from a younger generation that maybe you guys are being a little sniffy about it. But I have heard a lot of people say, you know, I, I'm I'm scared of getting into video games because I think it's just going to be too time-consuming.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's nothing sniffy about it. There is. It's more uh, just no time. I have no time. Uh, but I will make time to do this. Oh, yeah. That, do you know what that is? Oh, yeah. That's the rush stamp. The Canada Post has announced that there's going to be a rush stamp, um, and I think this is amazing. Uh, Canada Post, it says here, rocks out with new stamps featuring Canadian bands. Uh, so uh, um, the June awards are next week. Uh, so they're, they're, the Canada Post is is unleashing. These stamps, and there are a number of them. Uh, there is a uh, rush who we just saw there. The guess who is getting their own stamp? The tragically cool. are getting their own stamp. And then a band called Beau Dommage, uh, and I wasn't familiar with them, but they uh, apparently, uh, according to Canada Post here, uh, were formed in 1973, and they played a significant role in defining Quebec's music in the 1970s. And uh, but I, I think this is really cool. I know that uh, Canada Post has already. Uh, and have them here somewhere. They've honored musicians in the past. Stompin' Tom Connors has had a series of stamps before. I think uh, Brian Adams. uh, This is the first time I think that bands have been uh, uh, included in this. And I love, I love that Rush is getting one. And the 13-year-old me would maybe not have believed that Rush would one day be on a stamp. It seems uh, somehow a little bit non-rock and roll you know, it's like rock and roll is supposed to be rebellious. You're supposed to not, you know, that was a long time ago. These guys are older now. They're 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 at the point in their career where they're still making creative, vital music, uh, but they they're also in the getting awards stage of their career as well. Now they're getting stamps. They're getting uh, brought into the rock and roll hall of fame after a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they should have been inducted a long time ago. So uh, I think it's really cool. I don't really have a whole lot to say about it other than holy crap rush is getting a stamp i can now <laughs> to my dad with a stamp or with a rush ticket i i've seen rush a lot of times but they were all you know i saw them 30 years ago you know i saw them a number of times and uh, during their kimono phase, when they would come out and play songs that lasted half an hour, you know? And it's, it's music that, that, frankly, I don't spend any time with anymore. I don't listen to a lot of Rush anymore, but I have very fond, like Ravine, I have very fond memories of the days when I did. Um, I kind of left behind the, the progressive rock uh, Thirty-minute songs for snappier two-minute punk songs uh, around the time that I was about fourteen years old. But I did. I, I, but Rush, I'll tell you, I, I saw them it was very exciting seeing them a few times live at places like the Halifax. Oh, what the hell was it called? The big, the whatever it is in Halifax. The big amphitheater in Halifax, and, uh, you know, we used to go see a lot of concerts there. I saw Rush there, saw Kiss there, a number of people. But Kiss were huge when I was in high school, and, uh, you know, as I think of it, uh, it was the kind of music that uh, girls didn't listen to. It didn't endear you to the the women folk in school. It wasn't like you could argue with – you know, the girl sitting next to you about what the best Rush album was, because not only would she not know, she wouldn't care, and she probably wouldn't want to speak to someone who would argue about what the best Rush album was. But, uh, so it didn't, you know, it didn't make any of us any more popular with girls, I don't think, at the time. But uh, it was certainly, uh, uh, you know, a... Uh, 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 a, a moment in time for me. And I remember thinking back then when I see the pictures of them wearing the big kimonos, I used to, I think to myself, wow, there was a time when I thought that was really cool. <laughs> what was I thinking?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the, the stamp um, design that they've chosen. And it's very rock and roll. I mean, there's yeah. nothing um, passive. There's nothing sweet. Uh, about it it's it's true to the roots so that's fantastic. well and it's also i
0: mean it's it, it's a very it's an image that rush fans will be very familiar with and uh you know they didn't put a little diaper on the band no yeah <laughs> that's great
1: <laughs> that's fantastic yeah. yeah no and it's good because it's it's sort of um rush is one of those bands that they don't get celebrated too often but when they're they're in the public eye and they're mentioned, it's amazing the number of people that suddenly rise up and go, ah, oh, you know, rush, yeah.
0: Well, and uh, they have been together since 1974, uh, you know, and they played sort of blues in, in the beginning, blues rock, I guess, uh, and then, you know, moved on into worlds uh, untold after that. But, you know, they are, um, you know, someone who have been performing steadily for that amount of time, almost 40 years and uh, have, you know, uh, uh, legions of fans uh, all over the world that still perform sold-out concerts everywhere and have been uncompromising uh, in their presentation and their musical style. And while it's something that I think that I kind of outgrew a little bit, or I don't know if I outgrew it, but I changed a little bit. I veered off from it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I still really admire uh, their uh, their ability to, to uh, uh, be very true and, uh, true only to themselves.
1: Yeah, I think Let that's, the fans catch up. Yeah, that's very true. You know, in some ways, I'm, I'm just thinking a little bit that they're kind of like the the Monty Python group. Right. And in that they weren't trying to emulate anybody. they and being highly cerebral guys. You know, their music in a, in a genre that's not really known for thinking man's music yeah. is very intellectual in terms of the concepts, the lyrics, the subjects that they're going after, and that throughout their careers, when they sit down and decide to put together a look for their albums, for their bands, for the tours, they're not pandering to any trend that's out there. It's, it's very reflective of their own sort of, you know, self-exploration in terms of what interests them. Yeah.
0: And, uh, and you know, and Neil Peart, who uh, is their drummer and, and, you know, writes lyrics and things, uh, has also uh, written a number of books that are uh, that do very well and that are really interesting reads. And They're mostly about his life, and he's had, uh, you know, ups and downs like everybody else, but has come through them in, a, in an interesting and kind of inspiring way. So there's that as well. So maybe when they do a, a series of great rock and roll author stamps, uh, Neil Peart will get his own stamp.
1: Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Cool. Yeah. No, I'm very excited. That'll be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it'd be nice to actually go and get a stamp that I can put on my, my mail. That's not uh, what was it? I had like a book of the royal couple for a long time. That's right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: These <laughs> <Dude, laughs> yeah, landscapes. Is just you know, come on, give me something. Yeah, what do I have here? Yeah, I've got
0: uh, I've got Canadian scenes, but this one I don't know if you can even see it there. Uh, uh, the, the baby with the Canadian flag. Come on now.
1: Come on now. <laughs> well, I always end up with like some sports team from Manitoba on mine. Just right. they, I command and they go what sports team you want? Oh, I don't know. Uh what animals are on there? Okay, I'll take the, <laughs> the 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 foxes. Great. I'll take them. So no, I'm excited to actually have some some rush stamps yep. on, uh, on my, my letters. Uh oh, okay. So I wanted to do an experiment this week. Okay. Uh in that I wanted to play video. Okay. Now, Google Plus Hangouts doesn't really do that naturally. There is a, a, a YouTube feature, but that's – when we tested it the first time we started doing the show, what we found is only you and I could see the video. That's right. That's right. The audience is just watching you and I in our passive faces looking at our monitors, which isn't terribly interesting for anybody. And I thought, well, you know, as always, Google's products are in beta. It's, beta, it's experimental. Eventually down the road, they're going to want us to watch YouTube videos. they will fix this. Right. They haven't done that. So um, I'm going to jimmy something. I'm going to try it. This may shut everything down. <laughs> right. Hopefully it's Right. And I've picked something that, I, that uh, I've done some tests, and I've picked out something, uh, a black-and-white silent film, mainly because the, it may not play very well, and at least a black-and-white silent film, you still get to see what the movie is about.
0: Okay.
1: And I've chosen something very peculiar. So here we go. I'm going to see if this works. Let's all cross our fingers. Okay. I'm seeing something. This is a movie called The Acrobatic Fly.
0: That's really cool.
1: So what we're looking at here is a movie of um, a blue-bottle fly that has been placed on its back. And uh, his handler is introducing a number of objects for him to juggle as it were. The intent of this movie was to show off the incredible strength of insects, that at that small scale, they can handle objects so much larger uh, than their size. If you and I were on our backs, we wouldn't be able to swing tree trunks around what right. uh, the right. insect is doing here. Uh, in a moment, you're going to see him handling a couple of I think a dumbbell that is given to him. <laughs> Here's a rather large ball, uh, or I think it's a box of some sort that he's been handed. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly what it is. It Looks like a little package of some sort. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, and then so uh, I can feel my computer sort of speeding up here. So I'm not going to let it continue for too much longer. I just want to okay. get to the point where it's got the the dumbbell on. If we can get to there, I think that's a cork that uh, a cork from a wine bottle that he's uh-huh. not back and forth. Yeah. The moment absolutely. a little bit later, where you can see him actually. There we go. That's a dumbbell. He's not- <laughs> wow. And he's swirling and moving it around with incredible strength and agility. Uh, And then a little bit later, they actually show him sitting in a chair. Actually, hopefully we can get to that point before this shuts down on us. But yeah, an amazing movie. When this was shown, and this was uh, done in the early 1900s, so we're talking about 1907, 1908, it caused a tremendous stir and upset. So there we are. There's the fly playing with... um, Yes, this is amazing. They actually got the fly to juggle another fly. <laughs> That's kind of what I was looking for there. So we actually have one blue bottle fly who's been handed another fly, and he's turning him around. Uh, and the next scene, here we go, a much larger boulder that right. the guy is playing with. And then the piece de resistance at the end should be that he juggles not only the boulder, but another fly on top of the boulder as well.
0: That's crazy. This reminds me of, there's, in and, and, oh, yeah, look at that. Here you wow. go.
1: So wow. now we have the piece de resistance, a blue bottle, juggling a large boulder with another blue bottle on top. And so not only is he um, taking care of his own weight, but he's also got the object that's in between them. And I think I've pushed my luck enough that I'm going to shut it down.
0: Wow, that's cool. There's the, um, it reminds me of a, of a film that, that uh, was made in about 1912. Uh, by a guy called Ladislaw Sterevitz, I think is his name. Ladislaw Sterevitz was a a pioneer in stop motion animation. And what he did... Uh, was uh, make a, a film called The Cameraman's Revenge, and it's about a grasshopper who comes home, and uh, his wife, his bug wife, is having an affair, and uh, he takes pictures of everybody instead. But it's very elaborate. The, the 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 you see the grasshopper riding a bike, and, and it's 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 really really intricate. And at the time when it was made, um, let's just see if I can pull up some pictures here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, at the time that it was made, uh, people were like, "How did he train those?" Grasshoppers to ride a bicycle. It seems impossible, but uh, it was uh, It was all uh, in-camera trickery, but really really beautiful. It's available on YouTube It's not hard to find and uh, it's really worth having a look at here. Let me just uh, Pull up this picture here. It's kind of small. I don't know if we'll be able to see this or not very well, but That's a that's a still from the cameraman's revenge
1: that's so, awesome. So we got yeah. a grasshopper facing uh, an easel and actually yep. it looks like he's holding a brush and painting yeah. an open window behind him. That's yep. that's wonderful.
0: And uh, here is uh, the grasshopper as cameraman right there. Oh. And so but but it's, it, it is, uh, you know, I can see we're in 1912. People who were not particularly visually sophisticated in terms of movies uh, might be uh, a little bit uh bowled over by this but it was it's it's quite something so so check it out if you can find it the cameraman's revenge
1: well the the film i just showed an acrobatic fly um when youtube first launched there were a number of companies that were just enjoying the experience of taking material that they had and putting it online Right. And that clip came from the British Film Institute, which went through oh, cool. and found all this kind of stuff. And so people were discovering this stuff and getting really excited. When I found it, I was uh, at that time running a blog at CTV called Tech Life. Right. And I posted that to Tech Life, thinking that this was kind of a fun, novel image. And I was trying to teach people about YouTube at the time. Um... And teach them about the wave of silliness that was going to arrive. People at that time were very still serious about technology. And I was like, no, 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 everybody hold on. There's going to be videos about cats and all sorts of stuff. And I posted that, and it was um, one of the few moments I got a huge, hostile, negative reaction. I had a lot of people really angry at me for putting that on CTV. And why? Why? The reason being they felt that it was sadistic in nature, that I was encouraging people to take entertainment from the torture right. of a, a small thing, you know, a living thing. Maybe a fly, but you know, it, clearly this fly has been tortured in some way to perform this way. And I didn't have much that I could really do to respond to that. I knew it right. came from the British Film Institute. Uh, there was a little bit of information about the guy who made it. I knew that he was a filmmaker held of high esteem and that he had a scientific background. So my feeling was that it wasn't as sinister as it seemed to be, but I really didn't have much information that I could help people in terms of their their conflict with it. But um, right. so thankfully, I've not forgotten it, and I now have... You know uh, more information as to what's happening in that clip. And and um, well, it, the, the the clip is made by a man named Percy Smith, who is hailed as one of the pioneers of nature filmmaking. Yeah, I know. I know that name. Yeah. Yeah, and he is, um, you know, if you've seen the movie Hugo that uh, Martin Scorsese did, he yeah. did it about a movie na- a man named George Melier. He was really the Steven Spielberg of his time. He did fantastic special effects. Most of it, unfortunately, has been lost. Percy Smith would have been the George Lucas of that time uh, because he was working on doing things that were incredible in tiny, small, little constrained areas. And his specialty was insects. Uh, He was a, a, a horribly, painfully introverted individual he grew up having a hard time relating to people and had a better time relating to insects. Okay. So if you went to his home, he, it was full of spiders and flies and frogs and they were, you know, his, his companions, his friends. Well, when cameras came out, uh, the, the whole idea of movie making technology for him, he latched that onto that as being a way that he might be able to solve some of his social problems right. because when you uh, live at home surrounded by insects and bugs, you don't get invited to too many parties right? and people tend to, you know, treat you like an outsider and they don't really understand. And, and he kind of felt like maybe if I use my camera, I can show why these things are so incredible and, and people will start to love them the way that I do. So he, um, he managed to get one of the earliest cameras that are out there. And I do have, uh, here it is, which astonishes me that he shot with this. This is a, a boy in, a moy and basty camera. Huge, massive wooden box at the time. This would have been about this was made in nineteen hundred. It would have been a handmade camera. It's got one lens that's sort of bolted into it. And somehow with this kind of a machine he shot the video that you just shot. I
0: wonder if there's even a crank on the other side of it.
1: That's exactly – it was one of those ones where yeah. you're Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, True, because your rhythm in terms of turning would determine how fast, and we're talking 16 frames per second.
0: Yeah, well, camera people uh, back in those days – you remember uh, Jack Black's character in the remake of, of King Kong? He, is, you know, he was crank, hand-cranking the camera, and cameramen were valued for their steady hands and their, their ability to – maintain a, a particular, you know, speed and motion. So it would be fluid, but it wouldn't speed up, but it wouldn't,
1: uh, so it, it was, a, it was a, an incredibly difficult thing to do. And my understanding that this camera was the one with two handles, because you've got right. the, roll, the reel up top and the reel down below. Um, yeah, and he, he, you know, got his hands on one of these cameras, and he began to shoot these little tiny uh, films that were designed to showcase what insects could do. And in this case, he wanted people to marvel as he did, uh, to the, the incredible nature of, of that world on that scale, the fact that insects, unlike us, can handle weights so much larger than their own uh, body size, uh, and so he was a very meticulous man. When this movie was released, it was huge. I mean, it was it was across all the newspapers. It caused a massive stir, and poor Percy Smith, this painful introvert, oh uh, no, becomes it. famous. Oh yes, and he was attacked on two different fronts. So the first one was that he had a wave of journalists who felt that he had uh, used trickery. He was a fraudster because he was claiming this as a science film. He said, what you're seeing here is real science. This is meant to be educational. Yes, you know, I've made it look like he's juggling and giving little barbells, but it's meant to educate you. And then the second class of people who went after him was that it was animal cruelty. And I think part of this comes from two different fields. One is that people had gone through a lot of claims from circuses in the past 100 years previous where people were claiming all sorts of fantastic things. Uh, And then the second is that you have that famous, uh, which you've mentioned on the podcast before, which is the dancing chickens.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Right, Which turned out not to actually be dancing chickens, but hot plates put under a stage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. These birds put on a hot plate that you would turn on, you know, fairly slowly and then they would start to move their, you know, feet like this to, he was like, and it looked like they were dancing. Yeah.
1: yeah and, and for Percy Smith, apparently this, this horrified him because now people thought that he was harming his own little right. insects and, right. then, yeah, and then completely misconstrued and everybody wasn't getting quite the idea. And I, you know, it's we're lucky that he actually would continue to make films for the next 30, 40 years. But the problem is nobody really knows how he pulled it off. Uh, The only reason I know now about him is that there was a team of entomologists that decided to get together to try to recreate this film. Where they went and got one of the old cameras uh, and and tried to to shoot it. Now I'll show you what Percy looks like. Here he is. I love this shot because it actually shows him sitting in a pond. Oh yeah, yeah. His shoes are like right into the water. Yeah. He really wanted to try to capture anything and everything. would take these big, massive uh, cameras and try to put them in the most ludicrous places to capture uh, nature in terms of its own personal elements. But as best as they can, they've worked out that he probably put some kind of an adhesive, uh, a gummy material, on the back of the fly right. and used that just to, to stick it down. Uh, most people are worried that what's happening to the fly. There's no, it's not a case that anything's being done to the fly. There's no electrical current. There's no training here. There's no Pavlovian anything like that. It's just a case that Percy, having spent most of his life with these creatures, understood that flies, by their nature, tend to be very calm when you give them something to put their foot pads on.
0: Right. right. They
1: have sticky foot pads, and so they just naturally, if there's a surface nearby, will will latch onto it. Right. Uh, the second thing is that flies, and this is hard to, to wrap your head around. Um, I've been following a bunch of entomologists because it always bothered me the way they would just pick up insects and hold mm-hmm. it in their hands. I would think, aren't you crushing them? But, of course, right. insects are different in that their skeletons are on the outside. So they have almost natural little suits of armor, so when you pick up a fly, it's really hard to, unless you, you really squish down, to really do any kind of damage to it. Right. So in this case, Percy, it was a case that he knew that he could hold the flies, that they would be calm, and as long as they always had sort of a surface and a latch on, that they would naturally be okay. So he, I don't know how he did this, because it's hard to to imagine someone taking this, this ancient camera. Which has not a macroscopic lens on it. Right Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and trying to shoot this indoors when you don't have a lot of electrical lighting, and macroscopic can't, shoot I mean, photography requires a lot of lighting. And then on top of that, being someone who can figure out the technology, but also to be able to get the performer to kind of cooperate. Right. And you only have like three minutes of film too. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, it's quite a remarkable film and something that does not come from any kind of sense of um, chicory or, or trickery or sadism, that this is somebody who was actually very much in love with the insects that he was trying to share.
0: Right. Well, that's, uh, that's very cool. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's no cameraman's revenge. No, it's not. Yeah, well, he,
1: he did go on to do those kinds of stories where he would invent little voices or have people. Here comes Mr. Frog coming home. Right. You know, he would do right. those kinds of things. But he did have um, he had two other major hits. So the the the, the fly was one of them, and then um, a short couple of years later, he did time lapse photography. He was a pioneer in terms of using right. time lapse photography and did it to show a movie called The Birth of the Flower, which was flowers slowly blooming. Right. Right. An opening. And what you'll love about this is that people seeing this for the first time thought it was so beautiful that theaters couldn't get audiences to leave. Because there mm-hmm. would be people who would sit in the chair and and insist that they start the movie all over again so they could watch these flowers slowly open through the magic of time lapse. Yeah. Uh, his second was that he did a film showing mites uh, in cheese. And that just blew every, you know, you can imagine it's like the bed bug story that we had last year. Right. Everybody went crazy. And that year, uh, microscopes were the tech toy to buy. Right. But uh, what's interesting is in that people are now going through his films. It's discovered that he beat everybody on a technique that um, that is, is shocking, which is that he managed to set up a rig. He did a movie um, called The Strangler, which was all about using time-lapse photography to follow a vine as it slowly wrapped itself around a bigger plant.
0: Right, right.
1: But what's key about it is that as the time-lapse photography goes and you see the vine going around the tree, the camera slowly moves oh, with yeah, it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right?
1: And that was something that uh, wasn't thought to have been done until 1976 with George Lucas and Industrial Light and Magic, and they connected computers to right. the state-of-the-art cameras to kind of track the movement of frame-by-frame movements of spaceships. Somehow, in 1930, Percy Smith using string achieved the exact same effect.
0: Wow, wow.
1: And we have no idea how he did it. Apparently, he did it using mercury switches and bits of string, and would actually get the, the this massive box <laughs> camera to slowly move and time it perfectly uh, to get uh, to capture the, the growth of this plant, which is not something that you can just simply stop and repeat again. I mean, right. you can't just plant another plant and then try to, to capture it. So he was someone of astonishing innovation, meticulous nature, and and just this oddball who most people even today are still trying to work out who he was, what he did and what a lot of his films kind of meant.
0: Right. Wow. That's, uh, that's cool. I, I, and I, I, know the name, but I, I, I didn't know all that about it. I just, I, I love the technical innovation and I love that it was done with string and some mercury switches. It's awesome. Yeah. I
1: mean, and that's, uh, I think, there, there was a period there where people kind of looked down a little bit on the early days of film, especially black and white and silent film. And I love that now there's this great appreciation that at the time people were doing feats in in technical innovation that were just as amazing as some of the stuff that's being done today.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, uh, for more, go to the website, heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, we will put up some videos. I think we need some Rush videos up there right now. Oh, definitely, yes. I'll some Rush videos up there. And, uh, and I'm sure that if you want to have another look at the uh, juggling fly, that can be made available as well.
1: All right, I'll put that up there for sure. That's cool. All right, people. Next week.